0: You can open your copy of the scriptures to 1st Samuel chapter 7. 1st Samuel chapter 7. We're picking up where we left off, Paul Kalkinen from a few weeks back, in our journey through the book of 1st Samuel. As you turn there in your Bibles, let me ask you to think about something. Where do you turn when you need help? When you have a problem that you can't figure out, where do you go for help? it probably depends on what kind of problem you're facing, right? There's that garden variety type of problem that you can solve by typing the question into your device. How do I fix a leaky faucet? How do I get rid of ants in my house? And so on. With YouTube videos covering just about everything under the sun, there's no need to actually ask another human for help for these types of ordinary problems. But suppose you have a more difficult problem. Suppose you're not trying to fix a leaky faucet. Suppose you're trying to fix your marriage. Or suppose instead of getting rid of ants that are destroying your food, suppose you need to get rid of an addiction that is destroying your life. Those types of problems are more difficult to solve. And maybe even one of those types of problems that brings you here to church this morning, hoping that you can find help. But there is another type of problem, an even deeper type of problem than how to fix a marriage or how to get rid of an addiction. This type of problem goes actually underneath those other problems, deep to the root of the issue. And it cannot be resolved by a YouTube video or a self help class. Let me put this problem, this this deeper problem, to you in the form of a few questions How can I become a loving person instead of a selfish person? How can I escape death? How can I be right with God? You may not even know that those are the questions to ask yet, but these are the questions that lie underneath those other questions, the problems that we face. And these problems are not just difficult to resolve. How can I become a loving person? How can I escape death? How can I be right with God? On your own, it is impossible to resolve them. On your own, you cannot change yourself into becoming a loving person. On your own, you cannot escape death. On your own, you cannot make things right with God. You may reply, it can't be all that bad. Isn't it true that God helps those who help themselves? Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? I'll just do the best I can, and I'm sure God will take care of the rest. That may sound appealing, It may be the substance of Christianity in our day for many people. But unfortunately, there's one problem. It's not true. It would be better to say, God helps those who humble themselves. But even then, we cannot humble ourselves without God's help. So it is to God alone that we must turn to resolve these deeper problems. God alone is able to change you from the inside out. God alone is able to defeat death. God alone is able to restore you into a right relationship with him. This is essentially what it means to be a Christian, to be one who has turned to God for help for these deeper problems, to acknowledge our utter dependence upon his help, like a child. And when we humble ourselves before him, he delights to be our help. So let me bring this all around to the main point of this message. As we remember how God has helped us in the past, let us humbly trust him to be our help for the future. As we remember how God has helped us in the past, let us humbly trust him to be our help for the future. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Let's read God's word together. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now... The Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel. Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would open the eyes of our hearts, even as we just sang, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, illuminate our hearts to See your truth clearly, to see Christ in your word, and to grow into his likeness. We pray this in his name. Amen. So far in the book of Samuel, we've been introduced to the character of Samuel in chapters one through three, and then we had an interlude where we didn't hear about Samuel for a while. In chapters four through six, Paul Kalkinen preached a few sermons on this episode of the Ark of God going out with the people to battle, being captured by the Philistines, and then going into Philistine territory, where the Philistines soon learn that the God of Israel is not a safe God. He cannot be contained or domesticated, and so after some embarrassing episodes of tumors and mice, they return the Ark of God to Israel, which is where we find ourselves at the beginning of this text. The Ark of God is returned to the people of Israel. Now Samuel now enters back onto the scene, and he provides leadership to the people of Israel at this time. We're actually coming up to what will become a major seam in this book, a transition in the book of First and 2 Samuel, which were really one work in the original. The main trajectory of this book is to trace the development of the kingship of Israel kingship in the land of Israel. So in the very next chapter, we're going to hear about Israel's demand for a king, and we're going to be introduced soon to a man named Saul, and then later to a man named David. Samuel will play a key role in anointing both of those men as king. But before we turn the corner and follow the stories of Saul and David through the rest of these book, the book, the author here provides a summary of this time period between the return of the ark into the land and the request for a king. This chapter is like a vista point. You know, you've been, you know what it's like. You've been driving up a windy mountain road, one turn after another, climbing, 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 and you come out upon a clearing where you can look down and see the path that you've traversed. You know, In the moment, while you're climbing, turn by turn, you can only see the road in front of you. But at the vista point, you can look down and you can see the path that you've taken up the mountain. This chapter is like that. Verse 12, Samuel says, Till now the Lord has helped us. That's a summary statement that Samuel makes as he looks back, as he looks back from this vista point upon the deliverance of of the Lord against the Philistines. But I think Samuel has more in mind than simply the military victory over the Philistines in this chapter. Now he stands at this vista point and he looks back across the road that the people have traveled. Remember where they came from? You read the end of the book of Judges, and Israel has basically become Sodom and Gomorrah. There's rape, there's idolatry, there's sexual morality. The the priests of God who are supposed to be leading the people into worship are abusing the people, are committing sexual immorality. That's how the book begins with Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And the people experience military defeat at the hands of the Philistines. We saw that in chapter 4 when they were so sure that they could defeat the Philistines with the ark. Instead, they are subdued and defeated. And so now we see where they have come. We see at the beginning of our chapter the people of God repenting of their sin. We see their deliverance from the Philistines, and then we see them persevere under Samuel's leadership. What could bring such a change about? Samuel knew that this only came about as a work of the Lord. He raises up a stone of help. Ebenezer, that's what Ebenezer means, a stone of help to remind the people of this truth. Till now, the Lord has helped us. We did not achieve the victory here or this repentance or this peace or any of the blessings that we now enjoy apart from the help of the Lord. And we will not continue, we will not persevere in obedience unless he continues to help us. This is not just a story about how God helped some distant nation in some faraway place a long time ago. This was written down for you, for your instruction. Just as the people of Israel were completely dependent upon God for help, you and I today have no hope apart from the help of the Lord. We're going to look at three areas where we are dependent upon the Lord's help in this passage. The help of the Lord in repentance, First, second, the help of the Lord in deliverance, and third, the help of the Lord in perseverance. Repentance, deliverance, and perseverance. This chapter begins with a report of the repentance of the people of Israel. We see this in verse 2. It says, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented of the Lord lamented after the Lord. We're not told much about this lamenting. From the narrative, it seems that this lamenting is connected to the return of the Ark to the people. Remember in chapter 4, the people had assumed that the presence of the Ark would guarantee their victory against the Philistines. You know, they first went out and had a skirmish with the Philistines. They were defeated. And then they said this in 1 Samuel 4, verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today against the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Never mind that we're ignoring the law of God. We don't care about God. We're living as we see fit. If only we have the Ark, we will be victorious. And so when the Ark came into their camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. They were certain of their success. After all, wasn't this the God who delivered the people from Egypt? But God is not a good luck charm. He's not a cosmic vending machine. And rather than defeating the Philistines, the people of Israel are defeated. The priests of God, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed. And the ark of God, the symbol of God's presence with his people, is captured. No doubt this gave them some food for thought. And so now, as we come to 1 Samuel 7, we see that God had used this time of national decline, this military defeat, to awaken the spiritual sensibilities of the people. So when the ark of God returns, instead of rejoicing because their good luck charm is back, they mourn, they lament after the Lord, their covenant God, that they have rejected and scorned and treated with contempt for these many years. We are to understand this lamentation after the Lord as a sign of spiritual life for the, among the people. The sinful practices that they had previously enjoyed, they had indulged, they had now become loathsome in their sight. They have eyes to see their sin for what it is. And they now begin to grieve over it. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5.4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The path to true blessing, to true spiritual life, is through the valley of mourning. This is the right response to sin. Lax views of sin, complacency, apathy. These are all symptoms of spiritual sickness. But mourning, lamentation over sin, this is a sign of spiritual life. Let this be an encouragement to you. If you're struggling with sin this morning, do you mourn and lament over your sin? If so, take heart. That is a sign of spiritual life. You will have the help of God. Or have you made peace with your sin? If so, be warned. Neither God nor sin will tolerate rivals in your heart. In response to the lamentation of the people, Samuel calls them to to action in verse 3. He knows the people. He knows their history. They've waxed and waned in their devotion to the Lord over the last few centuries. You read that in the book of Judges. So he now challenges them to go beyond an emotional response to let their grief propel them to action. True repentance involves both mourning over sin and life change. See what he says in verse 3. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines." There is a type of grief over sin that leads nowhere. You feel bad about what you did. You see the consequences of your actions and you realize it was wrong. Your conscience nags you. You feel some measure of remorse. But it goes no further. It does not result in repentance or life change. Paul spoke about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 9 and 10, he contrasts two types of grief over sin. One he calls worldly grief, and the other he calls godly grief. The difference is that one leads to repentance and true life change, and the other leads nowhere but death. This is what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. Paul writes, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief leads toward repentance. Godly grief results in a change of heart and a change of life. So Samuel speaks here as a prophet of God and exhorts the people to turn away from their sin, to turn away from Baal, to turn away from Ashtaroth, to take concrete action to put away their sin. Another prophet, the greatest prophet, would say one day, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. True repentance includes grief over sin, but it goes further than mere emotion. It includes turning away from sin and turning toward God. It's not about changing habits or behavior patterns. It's about changing your heart. Changing your very self from the inside out. Cutting off the foreign gods and clinging to the Lord. Putting to death your sinful desires and walking in new life. And therein lies the rub. Your sinful desires that you must put to death, they're actually part of you. It's not like a bad habit that you have to kick. Repentance is much deeper than that. It's about putting the old Ben Abrahams into death and rising to to new life. You fill in the blank. It's about killing sin and clinging to the Lord. And if you know your own heart, you will understand why this is so difficult that it cannot be done apart from God's help. Who else has the power to create life? Who else can command a corpse to breathe? On the one hand, you must repent of your sin. If you do not, you will die. On the other hand, you're not able to do it. God must work in your heart so that you can repent. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.25, God is the one who grants repentance. It may seem odd or unfair that God would command you to do something which you cannot do apart from his help, but the biblical authors are more concerned that you repent. And whether or not you fully understand the inner workings of how man's responsibility is compatible with God's sovereignty. So the command for each of us today is to repent and turn to the Lord. Repentance is never something that we outgrow. It's not the, the introduction to the Christian life. It's the entirety of the Christian life. The Christian life is one of ongoing repentance. As long as we continue to struggle against our sinful flesh. We must live a life of continual repentance, of continually turning away from sin and turning toward God. And the good news is that God delights to welcome repentant sinners home. He rejoices over one sinner who repents. He's like the father that rejoices when his wayward son comes home. It doesn't matter how far you've gone or how long you've been there. If you've sat in church for years and never repented of your sin may today be the day that you repent and pass from death to life. If you've wandered in the far country for years, living a life of reckless indulgence, thinking God could never forgive you, the offer is the same. May today be the day that you repent of your sin and pass from death to life. Now, in Samuel's day, God used military defeat, the capture of the ark, the ministry of Samuel, to awaken repentance among the people of God. This is how God helped the people along to repentance over many years. And he may help you along to repentance in ways that you do not expect. You know, We judge our lives based on external events. We pray for God to bless us, and by that we mean we want career success, we want our kids to do well, we want to have our retirement locked away, we want a good reputation, be seen as successful people in the community. But God looks on the heart. He's more concerned with your repentance than your reputation. You may be afraid that if you truly repent of your sin, you'll lose the respect of others. Your self image will be tarnished. Your opportunities in business or ministry may be ruined. But God is not like us. He may graciously help you along the path to repentance by crushing your idols. And exposing your sin, he may take away what is most precious to you in order to produce true repentance in you. It may seem like a kind of death, but we serve a God who gives life to the dead. Hannah had learned this lesson about God. Her prayer is like a, a theme song for this chapter. In 1 Samuel 2, verses 6 through 8, she prayed, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Here I raise my Ebenezer, my stone of help. How we need the help of God. In repentance, Rightly understood, it's a work that we are not able to do on our own. But when we look back upon our repentance, we can recognize, as Samuel did, till now, the Lord has helped us. So first, we need the help of the Lord in repentance. And secondly, we need the help of the Lord in deliverance. In verse 5, The people of Israel gathered together at Mizpah under Samuel's direction. Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered, they drew water, they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day and said, There, we have sinned against the Lord. I don't know the specific purpose behind pouring out water before the Lord, but we see this event as one of corporate confession of sin and worship before the Lord. But the Philistines hear about it, they're upset. They muster their forces now to assault the people of Israel at Mizpah. If you rewind back to Samuel, 1 Samuel 4, we see there a similar instance of conflict with the Philistines. And in that case, the people cared nothing for God, but they wanted his protection. They didn't ask for God to save them. They asked for the ark of God that it would save them. They saw the, good luck, the, the ark as a good luck charm. But the result was disastrous. And now in 1 Samuel 7, God has brought the people to repentance. And this repentance results in a true life change. And you see this in the response of the people to the new threat. When they're afraid, instead of resorting to their own devices, this time they ask Samuel to cry out to God for them. Samuel makes a burnt offering to the Lord. He cries out in prayer on behalf of the people, like Moses before him. And the greater Moses after him. He intercedes on behalf of the people. And the Lord answers. He thunders against the Philistines. They're thrown into confusion. And the soldiers of Israel pursue them in victory. It echoes the deliverance of God at the Exodus. Where he threw the Egyptian armies into a panic. And delivered his people through the Red Sea. This thunder I don't know if it was an actual thunderstorm or some other audible sound, but it it certainly terrified the Philistines. Remember, they had subdued the the Israelites for some time without difficulty. So I'm sure they didn't expect much trouble at Mizpah. We see in verses 13 and 14 that they had actually taken cities from the people of Israel. They had subdued them. And so they were in control here. They, They certainly expected an easy victory. But God answered the humble cry of his people for help. The mighty Philistines were humbled, and the humble Israelites were delivered. Hannah had prayed this way years before in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. She said, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And in verse 9, she had said, Not by might shall man prevail. In verse... Um, we read about the Lord thundering with a mighty sound against the Philistines. And this is meant to draw us back to chapter 2, and even beyond that to chapter 1. Hannah, you recall, had faced a nagging adversary, a rival wife, Penina. And in chapter 1, we're told that Penina thundered against Hannah by bitterly provoking her about her lack of children. But you recall, Hannah did not return thunder upon Penina, but instead entrusted herself to God. She prayed in chapter 2, verse 10, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder from heaven. She trusted God to do her thundering for her. Notice the similar contours in the story of Hannah and the story of Israel in chapter 7. Hannah was humbled and broken by her barrenness, but the Lord produced repentance and faith in the fertile field of her barrenness. The people of Israel were humbled and broken by the Philistines, but the Lord produced repentance and faith in the soft soil of their defeat. As Hannah trusted in the Lord, he delivered her from her barrenness and gave her children. As the people of Israel trusted in the Lord, he delivered them from the Philistines and gave them victory. Now, that's all well and good, but what about our situation today? You're not facing a Philistine army. I hope you don't have a nagging rival wife. But you know the list of troubles, fears, doubts, enemies, problems, and so on. That face you when you walk out these doors? If you trust in God and humbly repent of your sin, like Hannah, and like the people of Israel, should you expect God to thunder from heaven against your Peninas and your Philistines, or whatever problems you're facing, and deliver you from all of them? Would you believe me if I told you that he already has? Oh, right, you say, my bank account's still scraping bottom, my health's still falling apart, my children are still wayward, my sin still gets the best of me. This guy's out to lunch. (laughs) Or maybe he's just asking for money. Or maybe we don't have eyes to see the great deliverance that God has already accomplished for his people, for all those who come to him in humble repentance and faith. like hiking through the Swiss Alps in a rainstorm. You can't see the majestic, massive, weighty mountain peak that is right in front of you. The reality of what God has done for us is more massive, more majestic, more real than the Swiss Alps. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, that our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. We live in an age when things are not the way they're supposed to be. You don't need any reminding of that. Sin and corruption have twisted everything. They've twisted me, they've twisted you, and everything that is good to make life hard and to separate us from God and from one another. But when God thundered from heaven against his own eternal divine Son, He delivered his people from this present evil age. Jesus, the Son of God, became sin for us and experienced the wrath of God in our place as he hung upon a Roman cross so that we might be reconciled to God. God thundered against him so that he would not thunder against you. Now if that is true, really true, capital T true, then it changes everything. Paul said in Romans 8, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If the God of the universe has acted decisively to bring about your deliverance from sin and death through the death of his own Son, if he has put death itself to death, then how will he not also give us all things? So, how are we to think about ongoing struggles and temptations that we face? It's not as though God promises health and wealth and prosperity in this life. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. And that's been the story of faithful Christians down through the ages. Those who promise health and wealth and prosperity in this life are out of touch with the call for Christians to be like Christ Himself, who had no place to lay His head, who suffered through many adversities and even death in this world. But after Jesus reminded His disciples that they would have tribulation, He continued, Take heart, I have overcome the world. And so when we see our struggles and afflictions and pains of this life with the eyes of faith, they're transformed into instruments in the hand of our loving Father who is preparing us for glory. A glory that far outweighs the temporary trials of this life. This is how Paul looked upon his imprisonment and death. He wrote to Timothy from a jail cell in Rome. He's in prison and he writes this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. In a Roman jail cell and perhaps being executed, would be safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul knew that God would bring him safely there. Though he might suffer and die at the hands of the Romans. And this is how we are to look upon our struggles as well. Yes, they're real. Yes, they're difficult. I don't know how difficult your struggles are. I know how difficult mine are. But they pale in comparison to the glory that is on just on the other side of that river called death. Its rivers are swift and cold, and we all must cross it one day but there is an eternal homeland for the people of God just on the other side. So the God who delivered Hannah from her barrenness, the God who delivered the people of Israel from the Philistines, this God will surely deliver you from all your affliction and bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom when you humble yourself before him. Here I raise my Ebenezer at the cross, we see the ultimate example of the help of God. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We could not deliver ourselves from sin and death. We are completely dependent upon the help of the Lord. Till now, God has helped us. That is the refrain upon Samuel's lips in our text, and it's the refrain upon the lips of all God's people as we reflect upon the help of God for us in the gospel. We've seen the help of the Lord in repentance and the help of the Lord in deliverance. Now finally, let's look at the help of the Lord in perseverance. In verse 12, we see that Samuel set up a stone between Mizpah and Shen. We don't know much about this location, and he called its name Ebenezer. Eben is just the Hebrew word for stone. Ezer is the Hebrew word for help. So Ebenezer simply means stone of help. And he sets up this stone as a reminder to the people of Israel. Its purpose is to remind the people of how the Lord has helped them in the past. He stands at that point of time, the only point of time that you can do anything about, it's called the present. And he looks back at the past and looks at the examples of the Lord's help in the past. He looks to the Lord's deliverance against the Philistines, to the Lord's help in bringing them to repentance. But he sets up a stone of remembrance because he's not only concerned about the past, he's concerned about the future. He wants to remind the people of Israel of their repentance and of God's deliverance so that they will persevere in faithfulness. So that the next generation will remain faithful to the Lord. And this is what we see Samuel doing for the rest of his life. In verses 15 through 17, we read a summary of the rest of his ministry. It says in verse 15, he judged Israel all the days of his life. We're to understand this judging function that Samuel exercised not as much like a judicial function in our our legal system, but more as a a spiritual authority. He was providing leadership to the people. He was teaching them. He was encouraging them. I'm sure he settled disputes as well. But he was more of a pastor and and, and spiritual leader for the people. And And you see he traveled year by year through Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah to judge Israel. He went on a circuit year by year. This annual circuit undoubtedly seemed less exciting than the stunning repentance of the people at Mizpah many years earlier. Oh, here we come to Bethel again, Gilgal and Mizpah, just like last year and the year before and the year before that. But plodding along in faithful obedience is essential to prove that our repentance is genuine. Plodding along in faithful obedience is essential to prove that our repentance is genuine. It's a wonderful work of God to bring a dramatic realization of sin that leads you to an intense emotional experience where you cry out to God for deliverance. This is what the people of Israel experienced at the beginning of our text. But Samuel knew that mountaintop spiritual experience does not sustain spiritual life for the long haul. If the people of God are to persevere in faithfulness to the Lord through months, through years, through decades, then something more is needed. So, Samuel's simple statement, Till now the Lord has helped us, it serves two purposes. It both calls to mind the ways that the Lord has helped the people in the past. Till now he has helped us. But secondly, it directs our hearts to the Lord as the one who must help us if we are to remain faithful. In the future, this is the same for you and I today. If you are a Christian, you must persevere to the end in faithful obedience, but you cannot unless the Lord helps you. We're always dependent upon the Lord to persevere. We must remember the past so that we can be steadfast and faithful for the future. We must not take our future obedience and steadfastness for granted. It's not a trivial matter to remain faithful over months or years or decades. I know I have friends and many of you know people, I'm sure most of you do, if you've you've got as many gray hairs as as I do or more, that have left the faith entirely. People who seemed so sure of their relationship with God that have now completely abandoned God and are walking in the ways of the world. They face the pressures of the culture, the enticement of sinful pleasures, and they no longer follow the Lord. Sometimes it may happen suddenly, but more often it happens slowly. Over years, they drift. They stop going to church because it's difficult for a season, perhaps due to sickness or small children or a fractured relationship. They find it's easier to stay home, and then they only show up for church on the holidays, and then finally they never show up altogether. Or they start listening to teachers that seem to have some new and better way of looking at things. They they figured out something that everyone else has missed. And little by little, they drift into false teaching. Until they're so entrenched in it, they cannot see themselves or this teaching clearly. They no longer believe the way their old church and friends do. And they're convinced that if only others would, would hear them out, they would see that this is all right. This new view is right. Or they make small moral compromises that no one really knows about. It doesn't really affect anyone else. It's not really anyone else's business after all. Holding on to a grudge against someone who's wronged you. Indulgence in secret sexual sin. Just a minor adjustment on your taxes. Besides, the government isn't going to really use it properly anyways. Neglecting spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer. Small moral compromises. And five or ten or twenty years later, who knows where you'll be. Small adjustment to a ship's course when it's trying to cross the ocean will lead it hundreds of miles off course. There's no one who's immune from this slow drift. In our day of celebrity pastors, we frequently see examples of high profile leaders, the heads of thriving ministries, who leave the faith or fall into scandalous sin. How can we be faithful for the long haul? Our text today teaches us that we desperately need the help of the Lord for perseverance. This is the implied exhortation in Samuel's Ebenezer, his stone of help. Till now, the Lord has helped us. And knowing the dangers all around us and the dangers within us, we are dependent upon the help of the Lord to make it through this spiritual pilgrimage to our heavenly country. We need the help of the Lord in the moments of spiritual crisis, but oh, how we need the help of the Lord in the ordinary moments of life. In fact, we could go so far as to say there are no truly ordinary moments of life. Those things that we despise as ordinary will determine your spiritual vitality ten years from now. Ordinary Bible reading. Ordinary prayers, ordinary confession of sin, ordinary family worship. Next thing you know, you're 35 and wondering what happened to the last decade. Or 75 and wondering where all the time went. And your spiritual condition then will be dependent upon your ordinary obedience now. Brothers and sisters, given our sin, the temptations of the world, the opposition of the devil, remaining faithful for the long haul may seem an impossible task. Remember, we serve a God with whom all things are possible. The Apostle Paul went so far as to express his confidence toward the church of ordinary Christians at Philippi. I am sure of this, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But that is just my point. It is God who must bring the spiritual work to completion. We never outgrow our dependence upon him. A tree never outgrows its dependence upon the nutrients of the soil. It may be a high and mighty redwood towering over the forest, but it will wither and rot if you sever it from the soil. And we must never think that we have arrived at a point of independence from God. That is the height of spiritual folly. Our dependence upon God does not negate our effort. We must work with all our energy, but it is God who works through us. As Paul later exhorted the church in that same letter of Philippians, he said, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We must daily set our hounds to the plow, as it were, and work out our salvation through ordinary spiritual disciplines, through ordinary obedience. But in the midst of our ordinary action, we recognize that it is God who is working in and through us. He works through the ordinary means of grace to guard us. In our text, 1 Samuel 7, God works through Samuel's ordinary circuit through Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah year by year, to safeguard the people. In our day, God has given to his people teachers and preachers who expound the word of God, who will give the sense of the word of God so that we may hear it and obey. The word of God faithfully preached Sunday after Sunday is a means by which God preserves his people. In our day, when all of us have God's word in our homes and on our devices, the word of God faithfully read and studied day after day. It may seem ordinary, but it's a means by which the Spirit of God will preserve you from drifting away. And the Christian life is not meant to be an individual affair. Those ordinary people sitting around you. God has placed you in a body, a church. And he uses the ordinary people around you through the church to protect us from the evil one and from our sinful and selfish pursuits. So brothers and sisters, on the one hand, it's incumbent upon each one of you, to make diligent use of the means that God has given you to persevere in your Christian life. But on the other hand, it is God alone who can preserve you to the end. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Here I raise my Ebenezer. How sweet it will be when we've crossed that river, landed on the golden shore, to look back from that vantage point and see all the ways that God has helped us to persevere along the way. Then all the harsh providences that we did not understand will be woven together into a beautiful tapestry that displays the infinite wisdom and power and goodness and love of God. Then, with all our brothers and sisters in glory, we will proclaim anew. Till now, the Lord has helped us. At every stage of our spiritual journey, the task before us is impossible, on your own, you cannot repent of your sin. On your own, you cannot deliver yourself from sin and death. On your own, you cannot preserve yourself for the long haul. But we serve a God who gives life to the dead, who does the impossible, and he will graciously help all those who humble themselves before him. Has he helped Hannah? as he helped Israel, so even today he will help you. He will help you to repent of your sin. He will help you to be rescued from sin and death, and he will preserve you to the end. Let me close with the words of that great hymn that we sung already. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may your word bear fruit in our hearts. We pray that you would help us to be dependent every day, every hour, upon your gracious help. It is our only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.